some gray hair coming in. How can you tell? Actually, it's not gray. It's white. Gingers go white. That's oh, cool, yeah. actually. Yeah. So does that mean yeah, Santa yeah. used to be a redhead? Yes, it Honestly, does. really good yes, it does. POV right there. Man, you're... Hot takes. Well, where's where's uh, St. Nick normally, like, originally from? The Great White North? And, no, I mean, like, like he was like a person. He was a person. It's uh, a Germany or something, right? No, St. Saint, Saint Nick is of Greek descent and originally from Asia Minor, Turkey. Wait, Santa, Santa's from Turkey? Oh, wow. This this story gets dark. <laughs> I'm just like reading down the paragraphs. Let's and do I'm it. Like, oh. Christmas in July, you guys. We're going to just go do a deep dive on the, uh, the origins of Santa Claus. It's a good intro. Claus. Go for it. In one of the earliest attested and most famous instances from his life, he is said to have rescued three girls from being forced into prostitution by dropping a gold sack of coins through the window of the house each night for three nights so their father could pay a dowry for each of them. Wow. Whoa. Saint and Nick. What an apt transition to talking about Sound of Freedom. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Liberty Portal podcast. Uh, it's good to be back with you. You might have noticed that we took a week off last week because, uh, well, it was America's birthday and we had to celebrate in style. So I hit the Smith River for five days and had an awesome time not watching the news, which was great. And David, uh, well, we actually lost David. I believe he's feral now, hanging out on the coast of Oregon. Yeah. Uh, we, we might we might need to replace him. So we're trying out candidate number one today. Tanner Avery is joining us in place of David. How are you, Tanner? Doing good. Really appreciate you guys having me. Glad to have you here. Uh, Tanner, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do and how do you, how do you fit into this whole gang? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, my job is uh, the policy director at the Frontier Institute. We just launched a, a new center, the Center for New Frontiers. Very exciting. Uh, but in this role right now, I am just speaking for myself, the classic disclaimer. Uh, but I've known most of you guys for a few years now, and this is kind of how I got plugged into the, the Liberty Movement. And i um, glad to be here and glad to see the podcast grow. Absolutely. And we'll want to learn more about the Center. Remind me again, Center for New Frontiers? That's correct. Awesome. I'm excited to hear about what that does. In the meantime, we've got Kyle Mack, Captain Quigley. How are you, Kyle? I'm good. I'm actually the one that brought Tanner into this whole thing. You did? You <laughs> wow. recruited me. Yeah, I was, the, I was the recruiter for Tanner. Damn. So yeah, Tanner and I go way back. But no, I'm good. Uh, Captain Quigley on Twitter, on threads, if you want to use that garbage platform, all that oh, stuff. Oh boy. <laughs> we got to talk about threads. Yeah. Yeah, we could get into that too. We'll get into it. Evan, back there on the buttons. Thanks, Evan. How are you? I'm doing well. What's new in your life, Evan? We don't hear a lot from you. Oh, I know. I kind of keep it that way. I, uh checking out a new job and oh i started uh lichtenberg burning wood burning mentioned that earlier so i uh you stick a few ten thousand volts onto a piece of wood with some solution and as long as you don't touch it you get some pretty cool patterns if you do well don't do that so don't don't attach them to yourself is what you're saying yeah yeah you don't want to do that right you must want to put lightning patterns on your body Ooh, could be uh, neat. a terrible idea yeah, like harry potter could be yeah. neat if you're into that sort of thing but uh, do you want us to cut the part about you looking for a job? <laughs> does everybody <laughs> my, does everybody know? I thought the exact same thing. I was my, like, uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, you, would, I know, you I mean, assume my, his employer listens to this show, right? Well, Evan's looking for a job, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> if you if you have a job for Evan, he's good with lasers. Loves yeah. lasers. <laughs> Excellent at them. What are we going to talk about today? We've got uh, FBI Director Chris Ray in an oversight hearing, uh, getting grilled on all sorts of things regarding Hunter Biden. Uh, regarding illegal FISA queries, uh, you know the FBI has certainly not been the 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 picture of perfect behavior in the past handful of years, or perhaps in the past handful of decades, depending on your perspective and 
what you choose to believe or not believe. Um, so, Kyle, do we have some we have some clips here we want to check into, some things we want to watch and react yeah. to? Yeah, so just to kind of give a little preface to this, I did try watching this whole uh, oversight hearing. It's part of the, uh, what is it, their investigation on the weaponization of government against the civilians, you know, Jim Jordan's running it, whatever that, whatever it's called. And um, it was largely pretty boring for the most part because uh, Christopher Ray avoided a lot of questions by just saying like, well, there's an ongoing investigation, so I can't comment on this. And that was kind of his response to pretty much everything. But I did think that uh, Matt Gates here did pretty good. I have two clips from him. Um, the first one here is him saying that uh, Christopher Ray seems suspiciously uncurious about certain things. So uh, mm. we'll jump into that one right here. I'm sitting here with my father. I will make certain that between the man sitting next to me and every person he knows and my ability to forever hold a grudge that you will regret not following my direction. I am sitting here waiting for the call with my father. Sounds like a shakedown, doesn't it, director? I'm not going to get into commenting on that. Well, you, you, you seem deeply uncurious about it, don't you? Almost suspiciously uncurious. Are you protecting the Bidens? Absolutely not. The FBI well, does not the, has well, no interest on. in You won't answer the question about whether or not that's How a shakedown, many? and everybody knows why you won't answer it. Because to, ev to the millions of people who will see this, they know it is. And your inability to acknowledge that is deeply revealing about you. Wow. Yeah. How many times can you say father in a couple sentences? Yeah. And... uh Conspicuously, you know, leaving his name out, but I think we we obviously there's an inference there. Right? Well, yeah, it's it's just one it's one of those things where, um, like I think that this is a very inappropriate question. Is like what do people seem like? Where do their curiosities lie? And I think that generally shows where their instincts are. So when you have like these organizations, like the FBI or what whatever any of these investigatory investigatory agencies, like oftentimes they kind of just like overlook things and you know you can be like oh it's just like a simple over overlook or whatever but it's just like when they happen over and over and over again you have to wonder is like okay is there deeper corruption going on here especially when you look at the deep history that is the fbi like you know <laughs> i was listening to um there was a twitter spaces with a, it was a debate between the krasenstein brothers who are kind of those like twitter uh liberal guys and uh dave smith and uh clint uh Oh, I can't remember his last yeah. name. Uh, Clint, Clint uh, Liberty uh, Breakdown. Yeah, Liberty Breakdown. Or Liberty Lockdown. They, they had me. a debate yeah. over a lot of the Hunter Biden corruption stuff. And this kind of became a major theme of that debate where it was like, where it's just like, well, we don't have like the exact evidence we need to say anything. And it's just like, yeah, but you can start to make some inferences. You're like, okay, this is really shaky. This is very shaky. It's like, oh, what's going on here? Well, that person said something kind of weird. And you can start to put these pieces together. And that's why so many of these corruption charges continue to go on for long, for so long is because like nobody ends up getting held accountable because we don't actually find out the real truth until like 50 years later after all these people are retired or dead or gone, right? Right, so and there like, has to be strategy to that, obviously. I mean, they, they don't want any of this stuff to come to light while people can still be punished for it or while it's still in the public eye. But you're right, I think there's a big difference between making conclusions based on shaky evidence and having the willingness to actually start to explore some of those things, holding them at arm's length like we like to refer to on this show as you know, not accepting them as gospel without having more substantial concrete evidence, but not being willing to even go down that road and say, well, well, why is this? And start to ask questions and dig. That is a very telling thing. 
If you are a small business owner looking for exponential growth, you have to connect with Adam Thune at Intellectual Patriots. He will revolutionize your business game and help you get to the next level. Adam can streamline your business practices and advertising strategies to improve your bottom line. His expertise in data engineering means he can build you the systems you need to collect and analyze market data. His mission is to provide you with invaluable insights to fuel your success. From grant writing and business proposals to digital systems integrations, even AI management, Intellectual Patriots is a one-stop shop for cutting-edge solutions. Don't wait another second. Visit intelpatriots.com to learn more. That's I-N-T-E-L patriots.com. Um, and then this next clip here we have from also from Matt Gates. His uh, stuff was probably the most interesting from what I gathered. Um, it's just kind of interesting. I was reading the comments under here. You have also Elon Musk weighing in on these. Um, this platform is unique and no longer a rubber stamping FISA queries. They must be soundly justified. It's just kind of interesting. Elon's becoming more uh, weighing into things. But yeah, here's another clip from uh, Matt Gates here. How many illegal FISA queries have occurred under your leadership of the FBI? Well, there are reports that have come out with different numbers about uh, compliance incidents. More than a million illegal ones? Because that's what the inspector general said. The inspector general said that in the 3.4 million of these queries, more than a million were in error. Do you have any basis to disagree with that, that assessment by the inspector general? I'm not, I'm not sure, actually, that's a, com- a correct characterization of the inspector general's uh, oh, well, findings on well, that. The internet will remind you but of I, that in moments. <laughs> Yeah, weird. This clip doesn't sound very good, but basically Matt Gates is is uh, uh, taking some testimony from the inspector general who's saying that up to 30% by their estimates of 3.4 FISA court uh, warrants, or was it, was it regarding warrants specifically, mm-hmm. were in error? So essentially saying that, you know, what, what amounts to 300,000 or so of these warrants were were carried out incorrectly. Yep. Which is an enormous number, an enormous percentage, but also just an enormous number. <laughs> well, think, and, and oh, yeah, go ahead. I think the shocking thing to me is if we had those same stats for regular warrants, knocking down doors, um, anything like that, we would have a nation in uproar. Um, but because it happens behind closed doors, we don't have anything going on with like that. So I think that's the biggest thing for me is, is kind of telling that. Yeah. Well, and I mean, are these are these classified? Or do these become publicly available at some point? Do we know? I don't think you can FOIA them. I'm not 100% sure. You I can't don't, FOIA I don't think FISA? Can, I don't think you can. Yeah, I'm not sure. That's actually a good question. FISA, for those who don't know, is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Um, you maybe could FISA. Well, the warrant itself, you might be able to FISA because a warrant is usually public knowledge, but they're usually a secret court, you know, so I right. don't know if, you know. Can you FOIA a secret court? Well, I don't. I guess I don't know. It's I mean, messy, quick. I'm sure it does. You you get into places where you you end up on lists and things, right? Yeah, but that that was the kind of my main takeaway of um, the uh, oversight hearing with uh, Christopher Ray was that there wasn't really a whole lot that came out of it. <laughs> it was a lot of uh, that. That was probably like the most that came out of it. There was just so much, just like. Um, what can you tell us about this? Well, I can't talk about that because there's an investigation. What can you talk tell us about this? Well, I can't talk about that because there's an investigation. And he just ducked and di- and he ducked and dipped and all the stuff for about two hours. Or actually, I think it was longer than that. I mean, it's it's reminiscent of pretty much every hearing like that that I've seen, where you know it's the 
Thank you so much for the question, Senator. And then they just repeat the same like talking point that they've rehearsed a thousand times. And then that's that's that. Well, and then it becomes this. It's also this partisan nonsense, too, where it's like, OK, everybody on the Republican team has to attack the FBI now. And everybody on the Democratic team has to be like, you're just doing such a good job, sir. You know, <laughs> like, and, and it just becomes that kind of back and forth. And you go from Republican congressman to, you know, to Democrat congressman. And just it, it's the whole back and forth. Thing right. Of it. I mean, this is pretty parallel, though, too to the Secret Service performing this investigation of the cocaine that was found in the White House, right? I mean, they performed this this whole investigation internally and, and discovered that there was no one to blame for it. That's what they just concluded. Cocaine walked it its just, way into the White House. It just materialized inside the White House and no one no one brought it there. Oh, it was funny. I was listening to uh, Tucker Carlson this morning has been interviewing all the presidential candidates at this Blaze Summit and he was interviewing um, Nikki Haley and was asking her about the cocaine thing. And Nikki Haley said that, like, in the area that they found it, it's it'd be impossible for it not to be a very high-level official. Like, only high-level people, like it's like the president, the vice president, or like a high-level cabinet member are the only people that go into that area. So it has to be one of those, which is kind of just interesting. One of the funniest memes I've, I've seen about the uh, mysterious White House cocaine was, uh, I can't remember who it was from. Maybe you you know. I think it was a tweet, but it was like, Yo, we call him Sleepy Joe, but we fault him for trying to stay awake. <laughs> like, you know what? They have a point. Okay, they have a point. How do you think you you keep Joe Biden on his feet? Maybe there's some substances involved. I mean, I would I would be surprised if there weren't, frankly. But yeah, I would be surprised for certainly most Adderall. of these people. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I think all our presidents are probably on Adderall. I mean, I think that's just probably a fact. that you. Can I mean, if college kids are. Yeah, the stats on. I think it's really interesting. Total side note here is... Um, when I was uh, doing stuff in, in college, re, uh, doing reports. When you were doing Adderall. <laughs> <laughs> Funny. Uh, no, when uh, we were looking at the, uh, basically what they have is these programs now where they can look at sewers and they can pull um, samples from it and they can tell like the drug, the drug use in an area too. Mm. And you look at, you know, like the, the goal originally was start out with like, okay, well, how much people in a population are using heroin? And so they did a breakdown of Montana counties and a lot of rural counties are using methamphetamine, you know, nothing really uh, unexpected there, but. What really is, gets interesting is when you start to go into like more mundane things um, like ketamine or Adderall and you realize that there's a way, 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 way more use than anyone really realizes too. So the technology has come a long ways of being able to do that. And it's kind of a, a weird way to be able to track what a population is doing in a kind of a roundabout way. Yeah. Yeah, that's very that's true. Interesting. Well, because they were using that technology to track uh, prevalence of COVID in populations, right? They're pulling COVID samples from you know, wastewater and stuff like that. It's really, I mean, you can, you can see a lot of numbers around uh, like birth control mm -hmm. in the water supply. And that's actually in, I believe that's in tap water as well. And I could be wrong about that. I might want to check that, but you know, you can, you can test a lot of different things out of water samples and it's kind of shocking what's in there. So this episode brought to you by Berkey water. Filters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this episode no. brought to you by cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not actually, but uh, I wish Berkey, if you're listening, I love you. <laughs> uh, um, okay. So um, what do we want to move on to next, gentlemen? Um, we, Joe, you saw The Sound of Freedom, right? Do you want to talk about that? I did. You're kind of making yeah. waves right now. I did see it. Um, I went to check it out on a Monday night. It was the first movie that I had gone to see in quite a long time. I don't even remember what the last movie is that I saw. It might have been might have been one of the new like Star Wars movies or something. I'm not even sure. Um, 
it was I noted on my way to the theater, I went with a, a friend of ours. And I noted on my way to the theater that I was looking forward to seeing the movie, but I knew that I wasn't going to enjoy it, if that makes sense. Like you're on your way to like do a thing that you know is meaningful or you hope is meaningful, but you're not like excited for it because it's going to be like a, a taxing experience and, or, or you at least suspect that. And I did. Um, and it was, it was certainly, it did not uh, let me down in that regard. It was really intense. It's definitely starts out kind of framing the, the, the problem of human trafficking and makes it very personal. You know, it, it puts it in the context of, of a, a family, you know, a, a dad with a little boy and a little girl who are abducted under the auspices of being uh, interviewed for like modeling, right. Or for like this, mm. this talent agency that wants to promote them. And of course, you know, as a, a poor father from Colombia with not a lot of resources to do much of anything for his kids in that regard, who wouldn't be kind of drawn to that? And I, I, I do understand that that is, I mean, it's all based on a true story too, just to preface that it's all based on um, the, the work of Tim Ballard, who is a, a department of Homeland security agent, former agent who did a lot of work in South America, you know, trying to capture uh, these, these traffickers and rescue children and, and not just children, but you know, men and women of, of all ages, mostly me, uh, women, excuse me, and, and mostly children, uh, it seemed. But uh, yeah, it was just, it was a really impactful film. And what struck me was, you know, a few years ago, even maybe five years ago, less, the topic of human trafficking or, or child sex trafficking would not have been like a political hot button issue. I think you could have walked up to anybody on the street and said, what do you think of this, good or bad? And they they would all say bad or most of them, unless you're like really pathologically troubled. Right. The, the surprising thing to me was before I even saw this film, I saw the reviews of it from a lot of the mainstream, you know, the legacy media outlets, Rolling Stone was, was one of the prominent ones. Um, and there were a few others out there really like just lambasting this film for being this like QAnon adjacent. I mean, uh, sort of fantasy for what was the headline is like, something for dads with brain worms or something like that. Like trying to paint this thing as like a very alt-right marginalized, like fringe movie about something that doesn't actually happen all the time or isn't important or like whatever they were trying to say about it was, was essentially to say, just don't believe what they're telling you essentially. But it's all, it's all based on factual events, right? So there's, there's an amount of that that's like, well, you know, there's historical record here. And also we know from a lot of history that this industry is real. And, and so I thought it was really like, again, like you have to be willing to ask those questions and, and, and put some pieces of evidence together. It's circumstantial, but why, what would the incentive be for any sort of news outlet to try to marginalize a film, trying to bring awareness to something that's, that's really important. You, you guys want to get a conspiratorial on that? Yes. <laughs> Are we past 10 scale. minutes? Oh, by, <laughs> can we go? Yeah, yeah, by far. We're good. <laughs> okay, good. Um, I, I have long believed that one of the major incentives for a lot of things like uh, foreign conflicts is that one of the major variables is that some very po powerful people profit from trafficking and, and, and war zones create basically trafficking, like harvesting regions for trafficking. And I've long believed this since I first learned about Jeffrey Epstein like 10 years ago. 
Like not when everybody else kind of learned about him like five years ago or whenever it was like the Jeffrey Epstein stuff has been going on for a long period of time. Um, and I, I've long believed that there was uh, there's like very powerful people that that profit from uh, trafficking. And if you look at a lot of these regions like uh, Libya and like Libya was a Libya was like a, a developing nation before the U.S. came in and just destroyed completely destroyed it, overthrew Gaddafi, all this stuff. And then after and then like two months after Gaddafi was overthrown, you could go on YouTube and watch live slave auctions. Mm-hmm. Really? <laughs> yes. Like like it went from like it went from like Gaddafi kind of working with the United States to uh, to kind of capture terrorists. And all of a sudden he was like trying to put the dinar on a gold standard and all this stuff. And. And then he gets overthrown. He gets dragged out into court and gets a, a, a sword shoved up his butt. And that's how he dies on live TV. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, that's crazy. I forgot about that. Yeah. Like people forget how gruesome that moment was. And then it's just like not long after there's open air slave markets in a country that was like doing pretty well. Like they were on the come up. I think, um, I mean, that's really the case across the board that we see with a lot of these countries that kind of get cast into all kinds of chaos. I mean, pictures of iran back in the day of blue jeans and all kinds of trees afghanistan you have it looks beautiful it looks amazing um and then you have have them turn into war zones and you know the soviet union went into afghanistan and, and there were so many snipers that they were cutting down trees and the before and after pictures are, are really shocking and to me it's just a testament of no matter where you are how far advanced or how civil you think you are is things can go really bad really quick it's interesting the correlation you make between war zones and trafficking destinations or hotbeds. Well, it's because it's it's times of chaos. Like now, now there's all of a sudden all these people that find are finding new ways of making money because it's now like a lawless zone, right? So, well, right, and you have you have these masses of refugees who are displaced from their normal, mm-hmm. uh, you know, environment where they are um, visible to their family and friends, and they would be noticed if they were missing, and now they're forced into a camp or they're they leave a country or they're on a random bus mm-hmm. to somewhere and, and they're very they're easier to pick off it makes it makes logical sense and, and oftentimes families are giving up their kids hoping that they give another that they get to a better life right there's all these things right where it's just like like the, like the parents might stay behind but then they'll give up their kids to hopefully they get adopted somewhere or mm-hmm. whatever you know and it becomes a whole and and my understanding is statistically it's like millions of kids every year that are supposedly getting brought into trafficking which seems like an astronomical number but it's, well right yeah. what's really amazing too is with the onset of the internet you think that that would be a big you would stop that and it doesn't seem like it really has too and maybe it's a poverty thing of when you're in a war zone you don't have access to the resources to be able to create a facebook account and check in with your family or whatever that might be but mm-hmm. that's just a shocking thing i think is is the internet hasn't necessarily stopped those things and in fact maybe it's escalating it in some ways people being able to access things yeah absolutely i mean when you look at the products of human trafficking i think that's made those all the more available and and they do you know that is one of the primary premises early in sound of freedom is you know you encounter the the person who is sort of trafficking in the material that they're creating as a result of of you know kidnapping these these children and He's just some he's just some random guy, you know, just some creepy dude in his basement selling child porn. It's like you don't you don't see it like and and I appreciated that like I thought the risk going into seeing that movie was like I don't want to see this stuff, right? And and that that I think is a really hard part about working in law enforcement regarding it is like you kind of have to. And like how 
incredibly terrible to have to endure that because if you are a compassionate human being, like I think nothing in the world is worse than, than experiencing that. And so all of the credit to the individuals that do what they can in spite of that difficulty. But the movie was very, I thought it was, it was tasteful and respectful in the sense of not over dramatizing that side of it while still bringing the impact of it. And I thought that like just cinematically it was beautiful. It was well done. The acting was good. Um, the story was good. Um, and obviously the, the intent behind it, I think is really good. Um, and I, I hope I think I think that it's like really doing well in the box. It office. has like a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow! From what I saw. Who produced it? Was it a mainstream producer? Or? Well, so the the lead actor was Jim Caviezel, who was previously Jesus, Jesus in Passion in of the Christ. Passion of the Christ, oh, wow. and then and before that, uh, Count of Monte Cristo. Which after that, he was very apparently very um, highly regarded as like one of the new like leading figures you know male actors in hollywood and then as soon as he played christ and passion of the christ he sort of like got put on the the no fly list mm. from a production standpoint and he he, he kind of went on his own well um, and actually kind of interesting because yeah like this seems to be in the mel gibson circle of things because i i listened to last night um on tim cast uh tim ballard like the guy that the movie was portraying and also the producer was on and he was saying that uh because I guess now he does like this. There, there's like these nonprofits that are stopping sex trafficking or something, and uh, and he works with Mel Gibson's nonprofit that does this. So I guess this is like a big thing in the Mel Gibson kind of circle of of things is uh, is battling this, which is interesting because Mel Gibson gets kind of a bad rap from a lot of people. Also, like he gets he's ever since Passion of the Christ, he's been getting very hit by the media as well, which is gets my conspiratorial yeah well he said if well so obviously i think the thing that like he, he sort of got canceled early right for some i think anti-semitic comments i don't remember it, it was the it was the phone call right the i had to cancel my cancel my laker tickets right like it was like i don't remember wasn't it something like that i don't remember exactly what it was <laughs> but we should see if we can find it but he did he has <laughs> said some really interesting things regarding hollywood and how there is this really dark side of it that you don't see which I think, you know, you don't get to stay in a club if you come out and like start revealing their secrets. Right. And so I think that would, from the conspiratorial angles, suggest that maybe his cancellation had more to do with what he was trying to uncover versus what, whatever he said. Yeah. Uh, those the, the, the first thing that comes up when I just looked up uh, Mel Gibson canceled is that he's a well-known Jew hater. Like that's from the Atlantic. That's that's the first thing that comes up. A very reputable. I, I I don't know what he said or did, but it 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 is interesting that he's somebody that has has gotten kind of the brunt because I he hasn't had a major role in a long time, has he? No, I, I don't think, think so. Of. I mean, and he was a producer on this, I think. Yeah, not was, in the film at all. I think the last movie he was in was last year. It was uh, or yeah, last year or this year, Father Stew. Um, I don't know movies. No. That's about uh Helena, isn't it? Yeah, it's about the uh, I can't remember the the guy's full name but yeah he was a he was a priest in Helena and he he actually used to be a boxer he went to Carroll College was a boxer and then he tried to go to Hollywood to be an actor and then he got in a really nasty motorcycle accident and he came out of the coma and he survived and he decided to go um change his change his direction in life and he went to go to be a priest and then while he was doing that he found out he had a muscular degenerative disease of some kind and so he had to deal with that, and then he got his pre. He was accepted into the priesthood, 
and I guess he uh, he was an incredible guy to talk talk about when you were up in Helena. He would uh, eventually he had to live in a like in a assisted living situation, and people would, apparently people would be lined outside the door to go get a confession with him. Like I guess he was wow. very popular. Yeah, uh, I, I'm not going to play the clip of what he said on his voicemails because I just read the uh, transcript. That's probably for the best. Algorithm <laughs> wouldn't like it. I take it. It's back in 2010. There was these recordings with these voicemails between him and his uh, then girlfriend. And uh, it had to do with like, yeah, it was like rabid. Well, it's it's weird reading the transcript. It says that it's rabid anti-Semite, but it actually seems it's more like racist towards black people. But mm. I don't know. Either way, not <laughs> great. Right. Yeah, yeah. Not a good look. Not a good thing. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. But nevertheless, I, th- I feel like, you know, his role in producing this film is less, less important. Um, I think the other people involved in it are are seem they seem like you know really earnest individuals who are trying to do this for the right reasons well yeah the, the, the reason i brought up uh mel gibson actually was because uh tim ballard he was saying that when the ukraine war uh came on uh his his like wife was saying like you got to go save these people because apparently they were like working with a bunch of adoption agencies that were bringing in uh ukrainians into america um like ukrainian kids and 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 he was like, ah, I don't know, like I'm kind of like he, he didn't want to do it. And then he said Mel Gibson called him and was like, you got to do this. <laughs> so apparently like Mel Gibson's very involved in this, which is in the in the anti sex trafficking stuff. So that's why I just found it interesting because I didn't realize that. Well, that is interesting. And I mean, there, there's a, a corollary here, too, with the border. I don't recall the specific source, but I, wasn't there something like 80 plus thousand immigrant children who were supposedly like misplaced by border control at the southern border of the u.s i mean this was the last number i remember hearing i think there might have been some contention around its its um veracity but um i would like to look it up and see but i mean that's another situation where it's like not quite a war zone but it's very much just like parents shoving their kids to the to the front like just get across the border a lot of opportunity for I mean, we know that there are like cartel members, there are criminals that are crossing the border either direction. It's just, it's, it's sort of lawless. And when you get into that sort of scenario, you, there's just so much opportunity for things to go wrong. Yeah. And this kind of, I guess maybe transitioning into what I wanted to talk about here was something that I'm very appreciative of. And I think that the more libertarian type should be a lot more appreciative of is what I'm noticing with the right wing base over the last few years is the right wing is starting to become a little bit more un, and it's not not a little bit more but i i think trump really helped with this in a lot of ways is that the the right wing is starting to really understand the uh the outcomes of a lot of foreign conflicts and uh, u.s meddling around uh around the world the the middle east they're starting to understand ukraine like a lot of the base of the right wing i think is very good on ukraine and understand what's going on in ukraine and then also with the border stuff is a lot of this has to do with intelligence operations going on in central and south america and all these people are like it's not just mexicans coming across the border right it's like honduras and guatemala and all these places and a lot of them are because we are destabilizing these regions due to coups of this person or that person you know and i I think the right-wing base right now is is understanding the blowback that occurs now and they're becoming increasingly more skeptical and that's something that we should like praise the right for doing right now because the left is doing terrible on this stuff now and they used to be the good ones on this right right 
Well, I I think just to clear up one point, I think you're you're very right. It's mostly not Mexican people. It's mm-hmm. it's people from all over the world. And I mean, RFK did that video from the border where he mm-hmm. mentioned there were like sixty plus or seventy countries represented amongst a few hundred. Yeah, people, you had like Asian you know? countries coming in, Middle Eastern countries yeah. coming in. It wasn't Africa, just like I mean, everywhere. Central America. No, like mm-hmm. almost. You know, that was a, almost a minority of the population, particularly Mexico, but. Um, well, because Mexico's yeah. actually fairly stable in comparison to a lot of these other countries south of it, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I think they so far have benefited a lot from the stability, you know, the, the proximity to the U.S. for that reason. Yeah. But we're certainly not helping their stability by creating this vacuum, you know, that's that's pulling people through their country into ours. I mean, I know it's creating a ton of crime and obviously the cartels benefit tremendously from it because they're creating a ton of business, moving drugs and people and who knows what. Right. Um, not to say that, you know. Border policy is a, a simple answer. I don't think it's as easy as just building a wall and calling it good. I think there's a lot of factors there. But what we're doing right now is obviously not working. And to quote the stat here, and I have the link we can put in the show notes. Um, at least this is this is from Newsweek. So, you know, take that for what you will. But under Joe Biden, it, it asks the question, have 85,000 undocumented children gone missing? And they go into that a little bit, but we'll share that article. Tanner, what do you think about this whole this whole border thing. Man, when I think about it, you know, I, I certainly would like to see a change in our border policy. And I, uh, I certainly am sympathetic for people wanting to come to the United States. You know, we have really robust economic freedom. I would want to, I I certainly would want to. And I think one of the biggest issues that we're going to continue to face is that this is political points, talking points specifically that people can easily score on both the right and the left. Mm -hmm. And it's going to continue to be that way for the foreseeable future. Uh, And I I think, you know, I'm a a big proponent of it's, it's going to come up from bottom up change. It's going to come from real solutions from people working with people they disagree with to be able to actually achieve meaningful changes. And I I don't think it's going to come from, Oh, the Republicans are in party or they're in power now. And so now we're going to be able to change this. If the Democrats are in, in power, it's going to come from people kind of, working together to create those solutions. So that that's kind of my take there, you know, regardless of what my, my policy would be, I think that it's, it's, it needs to change We need some reforms regardless. So. And people wow. need common ground on it. Right. And one, one of my frustrations and kind of tackling what you said there is where it's just like political football going back and forth here is that I don't really understand what any of the sides actually want when it comes to the border. Like, I don't understand what like the right or the left really wants from their policy decisions on like an immigration policy. Like it gets, everything gets kind of wrapped up into these magic words of open borders versus closed borders. And I don't know what anybody means by any of that (laughs) actually. And it's, it it always becomes very frustrating to me when I listen to like, you know, you end up having the Trumpers that are like build the wall and like, they don't really have much substance beyond that. And then when I hear like the libertarians, either the closed border or the open border libertarians, it just ends up being like, we need more immigration or we need to close off immigration. Like, uh, like, okay, like give me some specifics. I want some specifics here. And nobody seems to actually have, anything of substance when it comes down to it. And yeah. it's always just like frustrating to listen to the immigration argument. Well, I'm far from an expert, but I would think that if you made legal immigration far easier and more prevalent, mm-hmm. you would naturally disincentivize the risk that comes with illegal immigration, right? If it were, if it were simple to come here and if you were honest and hardworking and you just wanted to come and enjoy the economic benefits of the United States and we made that simple and, and relatively quick you wouldn't, there wouldn't be an incentive to try to cut the line and, and duck under 
offense or whatever and, and get into the country. Well, right now, my understanding is, and especially from that RFK video that you referenced, and we played that a few weeks ago on the podcast, was they basically just like send a bunch of people on buses and then they're supposed to show up to a court date like months, if not years later. And they just disappear. And, and then it's just like, we don't know where they are, right? So I was like, yeah, that's that's definitely not a good system. <laughs> like, I don't definitely. think that's working. I think right. on the other side of the coin here too is is if you really want to have a solution to immigration, um, that's going to be a stalemate for a long time as, as far as I can tell. But I think the biggest thing is is creating opp- opportunity in, in the countries in which they come from, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be very controversial about what kind of policies we pursue, but I'll tell you what, cutting off trade to a country probably isn't a great idea. You know, I, I definitely understand people wanting to do that, but at the end of the day, it's regimes, they're doing just fine. It's, it's the average day, everyday people that are going to see the negative consequences. So I think that's probably a, a bad way to go about that is, is making it worse there in their economy or destabilizing a country as well. Absolutely. Well, and that going into like the Central American stuff, I, I pay a lot of attention to what's going on in Ecuador um, because young guy, um, he's uh, the, the, the guy in charge there. He's, he's a very young guy. He he uh, he won as a third party candidate and uh, won by like a large margin and basically disrupted everything. And he's basically coming in he ecuador bought a bunch of bitcoin they're trying to do the whole volcano mining thing he's going in and clearing up all the uh, all the uh criminals right now and like there's all this stuff i've been paying a lot of attention to it and one of the things that i'm noticing is how much uh western propaganda is going against him and he's and he's very much talking about problems with the imf and how much that there's a western uh Western intervention that's going on in his country and in the surrounding countries. And he's very critical of the West because of that. And, uh, and he's kind of making the place quite a bit more prosperous, but there's so much anti, like anti him propaganda right now that it's just like, I'm like worried. I'm watching it. I'm like, this guy's going to get Gaddafi'd in a lot of ways. Like, and, and, and you watch it, like you can, you, you'll listen to the IMF, what they say about him. And they're like, he is a dictator. He's doing all this bad stuff. He's, uh, he's not, he's not, doesn't want to use the dollar anymore. <laughs> like all mm-hmm. these things. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, we're watching the beginnings of a Gaddafi situation. If he doesn't get ousted in his next election. Right. Well, I think there's an, an interesting counter chess move to that, which is occurring right now. And I don't know that we had it on our list to talk about today, but the BRICS nations, um, Brazil, yeah. China, Russia, uh, oh, sorry. India. I said Ecuador. South Africa. I, I said Ecuador. I meant El Salvador. Yes, you did. That's Thank right. you. Um, Naib Bukele is the yes, guy Bukele you're talking about. Yes, Bukele is who I'm yeah. talking about. Yes. Um, so, with the BRICS nations announcing officially that they are going to be introducing a gold backed currency to wow. compete with the dollar, that to me seems to offer a little bit of, uh, of cover for a guy like Bukele to say, well, now there's a there's a major trade block of powerful nations in the world who I can align myself with to protect myself from potential advances of the IMF or the Western powers trying to, you know, uh, really put the the supremacy of the dollar keep that in place and, and retain it. Um, now, granted, you know, I don't think BRICS has nearly the economic might that the the Western nations do currently, but it's attracting a lot of interest it's attracting a lot of uh new membership inquiry i believe from from nations that that honestly are are tired of being victimized i think by 
the U.S. dollar hegemony and the way that you know the um, the debt of the U.S. negatively impacts countries with with lower GDPs. Well, this ties into I had something queued up to maybe go over is. Uh... It, this isn't about BRICS specifically, but it is about the currency stuff, is uh, Larry Fink uh, from BlackRock. Most people, I think, know who BlackRock is by this point. He's the CEO of BlackRock, who multi-trillion dollar asset manager. Um, I, I've mentioned on the podcast before about everything, what I see is I think that there's very obvious corruption going on in the cryptocurrency space when it comes to uh, the SEC and some of these large asset firms. Um, like BlackRock and Vanguard. And I think that there is like collusion going on. Right, right now we had Larry Fink this morning went on TV and started talking about how he believes crypto is going to transcend international currencies right now. And he uses inflation as one of his reasons for it, which I thought was interesting. So here we'll play the clip. More and more our global investors are asking us about the role of crypto. And as I said, I do believe a lot of crypto is is going to be it's an international asset. It's going it is um, it has a differentiating value versus other asset classes. But more importantly, because it's so international, it's going to transcend any one currency in currency valuation. If you just look at the value of of our dollar, how it de depreciated last two two months, and how much it appreciated over the last five years, I mean. A international crypto product can really transcend that. And that's why we believe there's great opportunities. And that's why we're seeing more and more interest. And that interest is broad-based worldwide. Yeah, so he's coming in and pumping up the price of crypto <laughs> across the board pretty much, um, which is interesting because like four years ago he was very anti that, but he is trying to bring in a ETF. Um, but I think what we're watching right now is all of these entities, all these very large entities, I think they're seeing the writing on the wall for the dollar. And I think that there are, or, or at least they're, they're seeing the sentiment that people are having. And they're starting to watch these moves towards things like BRICS. A lot of people are taking the exit ramps towards cryptocurrency. A lot of people are going, are heavily investing in things like gold, right? And I, I think that we're, we're on the verge of watching some major changes when it comes to kind of the global currency hegemony that is the, um, that is the dollar. I, th I think we're still probably a ways out from watching like major collapse of that. I think that we still have to watch a lot of these other terrible currencies kind of collapse as well. And those people are going to probably run to the dollar, which is going to keep the dollar propped up for, for a longer period of time. But we're watching, I think, the, uh, the major shift happen in real time right now. The dollar is the cleanest shirt in the hamper. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's the the best one of all the crappy ones that there are. Which I mean, they're all crappy to some extent because any currency that is not pegged to something with with real value that's just based on the the faith in a given government is really, you know, it's only as good as uh, well your faith in that government. <laughs> and I I know that a lot of people, like you say, the sentiment is shifting away from having confidence in the ability of the United States to pay back its debt when now we have, you know, just the interest on the debt exceeding the amount that we spend on military and defense in an entire year. That's, that's a tremendous number. It's, what is it? Half a trillion dollars or something like that. On the crypto front, I don't know if you guys saw this, I just pulled up this article. Uh, there was a, uh, a pretty big ruling um, in a court this Thursday. I don't know if you guys caught that with ripple. Mm -mm. 
Yes. I'll just read you a little title. Oh, yeah, up here. I didn't even put that in the notes. Yes, we I'll should just, talk about that. Yeah, I'll just read it here. <laughs> On Thursday, a U.S. judge ruled that XRP, which is Ripple token purchases via exchanges were not securities transactions. The SEC sued Ripple, the company behind XRP token in 2020, alleging the company broke securities laws, which is a huge win yeah, and so some history on that. I used to trade Ripple back in the day, back in the 2017 cycle. You gave me a Ripple uh, a long time ago. I gave you Ripple? A long, really? long time ago. I was, huh, interesting. Before <laughs> I it was really that. worth a whole lot. I remember that because I was like, this is well, not really thanks, Ripple was like my first big trade back in the day. I I, I wrote it from 20 cents to $2 in the 2017 uh, cycle. So, And I, me, me and the boys used to call it hashtag dirty gains because like we, we all hated Ripple, but it's just like it was going up. So. No, just, just to be clear, you did, subsequently lost it in the boating accident, right? Uh, yes. Yes. I lost all my Ripple. I never profited off of that. <laughs> um, but yes, Ripple. So like I've been very well aware. Ripple's always been one of these things. Um, when this lawsuit came in, uh, back in 2020, is that, I thought it was earlier than that. Maybe it was 2020. Um, whenever it came in, it doesn't matter. It forced all the exchanges that were operating in America to delist the coin. So we ended up watching it just go crash down. It plummeted. Uh, like I think it was like $3 at one point and then it crashed down to like two cents basically. Um, so this, this has been hanging over the crypto industry for a long time. And there's always been this kind of thing as like, Oh, when is the sec finally going to win? And it's basically going to just make everybody flee crypto because it's like, Oh, it's going to be a war on crypto because if after ripple it's then who's next kind of a thing. But what ended up happening here was it was the opposite where we ended up actually saying that Ripple's not a security. And I will tell you what, like according to the Howey test, if Ripple's not a security, most of these things aren't securities, which is the recent stuff with all the exchanges with the SEC going after Binance and Coinbase, they labeled like 13, 14 coins that were securities or whatever. It's like if Ripple's not a security, those coins definitely are not securities, which is very positive information for the industry as a whole, I would say. Yes, and conspiracy hat on here the the order of operations of this makes me suspect right mm -hmm. because you have first you have the bad news the fud comes out right the sec is suing coinbase binance whatever things crash uh and then a week later <laughs> and, and and at that point the prices of all, a lot of these assets go down so you have opportunities for people that are savvy to buy them and then a week later you have larry fink saying Bitcoin, ETFs. Bitcoin could. Oh yeah, they're they're announcing well, their ETF. Yeah, Vanguard and Charles Schwab and BlackRock, like they're launching exchanges, they're launching, they're filing for ETFs, all this stuff, right? Right. At an interesting point where there was just a, a lawsuits brought by the SEC, hmm, like literally a week later. Very interesting. And then you have Larry Fink hitting MSNBC saying Bitcoin is going to transcend uh, any national currency, and then you have Ripple lawsuit ruling in favor of Ripple. And and now there's there's no causation here, but there, there's just very interesting timing. I find it very interesting that uh, the way these things work. Well, and it, and it is deeply within the bear market, right? Which is, you know, these people are savvy investors. I think that they wanted to get in, and they didn't want to get in at the top like all the normies did, you know, in right. that last cycle, mm -hmm. which is where everybody gets super hyped, and then they buy in right at the top, right before a crash. Um, they're getting in close to the bottom and they're trying to ride the wave up next time. Because traditionally, the crypto markets go in these four-year cycles around the Bitcoin halving period, which is just the, the, the inflation of Bitcoin gets cut in half every, every four years until the final Bitcoin is mined, which is 21 million, or 21 million Bitcoin, which is like 100 years from now. So typically, crypto goes in these cycles. And I think that these entities 
understand that. And they're trying to accumulate now before we probably see massive price movement a year from now. Kyle, that really brings up a great question. What happens when we reach that 21 million in 100 years? What, what, what does that look like for Bitcoin? Does that change anything? Or? I'll be dead by then. <laughs> Good I answer. Some, I have some thoughts on this. <laughs> I mean, we could get into... So the, the reason why Bitcoin works is twofold. Bitcoin, uh, the miners are verifying the network and right. then they're getting the minor rewards, which is the inflation of Bitcoin, which in Bitcoin currently the inflation rate is like 2% or something. Next year, it'll be cut down to one. The year after that, it'll be cut down to like 0.5 and so on and so on until the final Bitcoin is mined. Um, but what happens? I don't know. Like I, I wouldn't be, to be frank, I wouldn't be surprised if down the road we end up seeing like, you end up seeing Bitcoin's inflation rate. Uh, I don't know. This would be a controversial opinion. Bitcoiners would, would freak out on me. I wouldn't be surprised if there ends up becoming a, like a introduced inflation rate like 80 years from now or something where it's just like, yeah, it's like 1% or something. Um, but I, I also wouldn't be surprised. I, I don't Shaking know. My damn I don't, I don't know what here. happens. I, I know your position on this. I have my position I'm, on this. I'm going gonna, gonna to say this. I think, I think this question is why BTC has a fatal flaw and why I think that the original vision of what Bitcoin is currently embodied by Bitcoin Satoshi's vision, BSV makes a ton of sense because as the halvings happen and the amount that the miners get paid for securing the network gets cut in half, the incentive for them to continue securing the network goes down unless of course the value of bitcoin goes up proportionate to the amount that the and miners you know, the can supply make, is being cut and off, miners right? can make money from transaction fees too right. which is where a lot of the stuff goes into right i, so, I worry no, that no, this hold, might be too much it for might the audience, be it might but. be but i'm going to keep it i'm going to keep it high level so there was a very important uh point in bitcoin history where certain people wanted to keep the block size very small so that anybody on their home computer could run a node and be a part of the bitcoin network it's called the fork wars in the bitcoin history right and so the small blockers, those were the BTC people, and the big blockers were actually Bitcoin Cash people, right? At the at that point, the the benefit of a big block of of having a block that can scale, right, and fit a lot of transactions into it, right? The benefit of that is that the miners can make more in transaction fees. So by artificially limiting the size of the block, you limit the number of transactions that can go in that block. You limit the number of transactions per second, meaning transactions cost more for the end user. And the miners can only make so much. BSV with the blocks that can scale infinitely, the miners can make a lot more per transaction. And you as a consumer of BSV, a, a user of it as a payments network, pay a fraction of a fraction of a penny. So to me, that's why I see the technological side of BSV being absolutely superior to BTC, which is sort of a... I would call it a bastardized version of the original vision of Bitcoin, but I won't go any deeper than well, and, that. And I'll, I'll, uh, sure. I'll steel man the other side of that argument because I'm kind of in between this. I'm not sure what the correct, correct decision was. I, I, at one point, I had a very strong opinion, but I have less of a strong opinion these days. But uh, the what's happening on Bitcoin now is you have all these second layer solutions like the Lightning Network, which is basically like you move your Bitcoin onto the Lightning Network, and this is where like the the cheap transaction layer happens. So if you're doing Bitcoin to Bitcoin transfers from like wallets on the base layer of Bitcoin, then they're going to be a little bit more expensive. You might spend a few dollars for a transaction fee, but if you're using the second layer solutions like the Lightning Network, then it's like fractions of a penny. 
and this is their workaround. But you had the problems is the verification of the network later on, and there, there, it's, there's it, a and it's not actually stuff, right? on on chain it's this extra layer La- layer twos become centralized, centralized uh, right right as the <laughs> yeah. uh the token guy here who has no idea what you guys are talking about <laughs> but i like it I, I i think that bringing it full circle the most interesting thing to me about this one is is kind of removing government's hands from manipulating currencies is great but i think the other interesting thing that i was thinking about is Bitcoin or cryptocurrency broadly is is it's going to take time to get adopted. Mm-hmm. And when I try to explain to Montanans specifically about this, about what cryptocurrency is, it is very difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think people our age, you know, even though I'm not the most well versed in this, uh, they tend to understand it quite a bit more. And I think it's going to be one of those things that generational. It's going to take some time. My parents have come around a little bit to it. Uh, but they're still, you know, at a loss for a lot of these things. And I think that over 50, 75 years, when we have people that are basically kind of grown up with the idea of cryptocurrency, you will see a bigger adoption of it. And I think it will be something that will absolutely rival currency, which is a great pressure on, you know, the government to not increase inflation. If if you're losing your savings all the time because inflation is just through the roof and the government's spending and printing then it's it's a good check on them whether or not it's widely adopted or not. I actually totally. think that most cryptocurrency is going to fall under this umbrella of where the average person won't even realize what chain they're on. And I think that things are going to become very interoperable and it'll be like you'll end up, you know, you'll get this like collect this digital collectible and that'll be on Polygon and then you might sell it and they'll and, and then you'll get some Ethereum, but you're just going to be seeing like, like the average person isn't going to understand that it's like moving from chain to chain. Um, I, I think that is where the future ends up going. And like a lot of these like nuances, it's like a, a lot of these things, like us trying to explain how the technology actually works to people is like trying to explain how email works. But mm-hmm. in reality, like the average person is just like I just make a Gmail and then I send and then I send messages to people and they don't That's need to underst- and they don't understand need to understand what's all happening underneath that right, right? like I think eventually the UI ends up the UI UX type of you know deal ends up getting to the point where the average person just doesn't really need to know that much. Totally. Mm-hmm. I think the the big question is what do the on ramps and off ramps look like because and that is the hardest thing for BSV right now. Is like I want to use it. But a lot of the exchanges have delisted it for various reasons, political and otherwise, within crypto and, and whatnot. Um, I think wrongly, but that's just my personal opinion. But that's going to be a, a point of friction and something that the industry has to figure out how to alleviate if it's going to achieve that mass adoption. Well, the on-ramp, on, off-ramp is a big thing for the in- industry as a whole, is you have government crackdowns going on right now, Operation Choke Point 2.0, which I've talked about a lot of times is like a lot of banks will refuse to work with crypto in any way. Like I just saw, um, I just saw Bank of America. There's a bunch of people that just started getting their bank accounts uh, stripped from them because of their interactions with cryptocurrency. Hmm. Um, So like, so what you end up having is like you have these crypto friendly banks and all those crypto friendly banks just so happened to get hit during the banking crisis last year. Um, A lot of them did not have the SVB situation. A lot of them, there was strange other situations that happened to them where they got they got um uh annihilated yeah this episode is brought to you by our friends at zesty beverages 
They're on a mission to unf*** the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. Well, a big a big concern for me regarding the BlackRock thing, to bring it back around to that, is that I'm, af- I'm afraid that what you might see from this is that you get these vetted industry insider players that are allowed the keys, you know, so to speak, no pun intended, to al- to be the on-ramp, off-ramp for people to get into cryptocurrency, or so they think, right? But as we talked about before we started recording, an ETF, an exchange-traded fund, to those who aren't super familiar with it, is an investment product that basically, specifically as it regards cryptocurrency, does not allow you to actually personally possess and custody your own Somebody else's managing your crypto for you. It's in their bank account technically, and you have figures on a screen in your account with that custodian that say, these are your Bitcoin, but they're really not because you don't have the private key to those Bitcoin or whatever currency it might happen to be, right? So to me, that's a big concern is where people think they're investing in this sort of thing, but they're really not. And so well, just a, be aware of that. It's it's a good place for the market to come in. You know, if there is a demand for those things and it's it's become, I didn't know about that, you know? And I think it is something about a couple of years ago that I, I started to realize as well too. And it's, it's a great place for the market to be. And it's going to take an entrepreneur to step up and say, hey, these other platforms, they might be easy to use right now, but I can make an easy to use platform where you have a wallet that you can have everything in right there, platform and everything. And I Which think those it, exist now. That's good. But but also a lot of the problems too is, so like part of the the overall game theory on the Bitcoiner side is always like, we want to start seeing companies have Bitcoin in their treasuries and things like that. But you have these big publicly traded companies that they weren't allowed to put Bitcoin. They're allowed to, but like they're worried about like what Larry Fink would say. <laughs> Um, because of ESG scores and things like that on if they had Bitcoin in their treasury, which would be publicly stated because they're publicly traded companies. So you end up having ESGs coming in and, 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 and all these companies being like, well, Bitcoin's not green because there's a narrative that says that it's not green. So if I don't have green Bitcoin, I can't ha- like I can't actually use it. And there's all these people that they want to hedge against inflation, but they can't. And you had Larry Fink's ESG scores that wouldn't let them buy Bitcoin. Yeah, so now, which is another thing here, where now Larry Fink says that Bitcoin's fine, right? So you're like, what what is what is happening here? Right. Seems like a lot of manipulation, and to me, and to maybe put a bow on the the cryptocurrency discussion because I'm sure we've we've probably lost some people in the depths of this. Um, it's very yeah, it is very telling that the guy who invented ESG comes back around to say that Bitcoin is now okay because he said so, or because now is the right time for him. And to me, uh, it seems it seems manipulative, and that sort of thing is is more possible inside of cryptocurrency because there there is a lack of clarity around the regulatory environment, unlike that which is present in the well, rest of the stock market. I think so it also shows how... However you look at that. I think it shows how deep, how deeply psyoped finance markets actually are, too. Sure. Well, right. I mean, you want to talk manipulation, and we can go down this rabbit hole another time, you know, look at uh, paper, gold, and silver, and what that does to the price of bullion, gold, and silver. <laughs> but no, we will, we'll get out of nerd, nerd econ, crypto talk, and I, I do want to get to a couple of these other things. Uh... 
particularly on my list would be Tucker's interview with Andrew Tate, which I thought was really exciting. Did you happen to watch that, Tanner? I watched the clip. Yeah. I did not watch the whole thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to see what you guys think and you can unpack it for me. Oh. Well, so particularly what I have here, it's actually part of a broader thing, which is something that I mentioned, but then we kind of deviated from it, was I'm very happy with the way that the right wing is going about foreign policy these days, like the base is moving um, so much over the last few years. And I have like a list of different things here that is Tucker Carlson interviewing this person or that person and that person. And he's like, he's like exposing people as a war hawk or he's praising people for not being a war hawk. And this Andrew Tate clip here was one of those things where uh, Tucker asked him for his opinions on, and I, I would consider Andrew Tate a right wing figure, right? Like I think I would consider, He's not necessarily a political person, but he's in the right wing ethos. I think I the say. left wing would call him right wing. But I think yeah. generally after listening to that interview, and I haven't been the biggest Andrew Tate adherent or follower or fan or anything like that. But after listening to his interview, I think a lot of the things that he was saying are kind of just uh, really objective and true things. Yeah. So, yeah, here is uh, the Tucker Carlson asks him about Ukraine. Yeah. I, up until this point, never really commented too heavily on polit politics. Yes. But I understand very well, I like to believe what's happening with Ukraine and Russia. And what I will say to the people who are watching this at home is that if you are naive enough to believe that there are good guys and bad guys in wars, and it's as simple as good and bad, and that the bad guys are crazy, and the good guys want freedom, then you need to do a little bit more investigation into what's really happening. And when you look at the vested interest of any country or any person- can I, can I just ask you to pause and just comment? That's the truest thing, what you just said. That is the, and anyone who doesn't understand that should shut the fuck up. <laughs> and I mean it, having seen war, anyone who's telling you that it's Churchill versus Hitler yeah. is an idiot. Completely. Well, I'll, I'll give you an example. When my father was still alive, oh. we, my <laughs> I think- what I'd like to note there, too, is that's not just an Andrew Tate take. That's not just yes. a Tucker Carlson take. That is, you know, I, I disagree with a lot of what, what the guy says, both of them. Um, but I think that, you know, this really made me think of a Alexander Solzhenitsyn quote, which I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read because I think it's a great one. Kind of fits right in this, which is the line separating good and evil passes not through states nor between classes nor between political parties either but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. And I think that is so true. And I think that when you reach a point where you realize that everyone is capable of great evil and great good, you have so much more sympathy for those things, so much more sympathy for the mistakes that people make and for calling out wrong when you see it. And I think that is my philosophy when I look at the war in Ukraine uh, being... You know, I don't need to necessarily take a side. And I think it's wrong that Russia invaded Ukraine. But at the at the end of the day, I, I think that everyone's capable of, of doing wrong things. Doesn't justify it by any means. But once you have that reality, it makes it a lot easier to actually look for a solution going forward. Absolutely. Very good take and nuanced take, I think. I try the best. Which is, I think, something that the discourse lacks is nuance. Would you... Would you agree? I would certainly agree that the, the Twitter discourse and now the threads discourse, I'm sure as well, we'll maybe see that too. No, threads just censors you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no nuance on threads. Can't have it. If you, if, if you don't know, threads is Zuckerberg's Twitter clone that he launched last week. If you don't know, then you've either been on the Smith River for five days without service or 
you just live under a rock full time, yeah. which I would prefer to do. I feel like that would be a pretty great way to live my life anymore. Um, um, but the the big thing with this is, I think that that I think that Andrew is completely correct on this. Is that if you're looking purely, fr- frankly, it's not just the Ukraine conflict; it's foreign policy, but it's also just politics in general. Often, where if you're just like looking at it, just like my guy good because he enlists the correct tribal signets, signals to my to my people and to my religious ethos versus that guy who is obviously crazy because he doesn't believe what i believe and he's not he's not my team and so he he must be bad and he must be evil if that's the way that you view the world like you're you're so lost <laughs> you're you you got to start thinking beyond good and evil on these things like think the world is so much more complicated than that and it's not just as as easy as just like oh well let's just let's just make sure that the good guys get tanks now because mm-hmm. they're the good guys and they're on team us mm-hmm. and so they need tanks and bazookas and and they'll be good right and then they need fighters and then they need cluster bombs and they need everything because yeah. they're the good guys right yeah it's like that's not that's not what this is like frankly i mean i mean Dave has ranted enough about about Ukraine in here. Like we we don't need to go more and more into the into the rant about the corruption that is in Ukraine. But like, just dig a little deeper. Well, exactly. And to that point, I would say that I think Andrew Tate probably almost more than any contemporary pop culture figure is someone who I think people more than likely have an opinion of based on what they've heard about him propaganda about than him. what they've heard from him because he he so quickly i mean he, and he was popular for quite a long time but he so quickly got canceled the first time i heard that name was when he got like all of his social media removed from yeah i think it was maybe six eight months ago something like that yeah it was like last fall yeah and after listening to this interview which was a two and a half hour interview i dedicated a lot of time to it i was surprised at at how to me, how like kind of benign so much of what he said was. And I think that more people like I, I read some of the the comments on the on the video on Twitter and I, I saw a lot of people say I had never really listened to this guy before. And I liked a lot of what he had to say. I didn't agree with everything, but I liked a lot of what he had to say. And it was not the the caricature that I think a lot of people have in their mind of who he is, what he is, etc. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I've met the guy in person before. Like, yeah, before his big, his big blow up, he's, he's traveled around some, like, as he was kind of exiting his, uh, kickboxing career, he started kind of getting more involved in, uh, politics a little bit, kind of behind the scenes and stuff. Um, and he got very big in like the crypto space and all this stuff. Like he happened, he's a friend of a friend. Like I've, I've met him before and I will say it was before his big blow up. Um, I will say that he my impression of him from just one time meeting him like it's not like i don't i don't know him <laughs> like mm-hmm. like really but uh i i think that he's a very genuine and very and very very intelligent human being like like i can there's a deep intelligence inside of him and a lot of the stuff that people see because they are seeing out of context clips in like a tiktok video that other people are making about him like the dude doesn't actually have a tiktok like other people are making tiktoks of him right mm-hmm. um is a lot of that is just general uh exaggerated self marketing um like th- those aren't really him i would say like he he's actually a v- very much more a uh i think like a very like centered kind of uh calm stoic individual in in like in real life mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah that is interesting tanner i'm curious as someone who does comms work for an organization you often have to distill a lot of nuance into 60 seconds or 90 seconds or whatever like what 
is that possible for one to to really clearly communicate detailed ideas in such a short time or are you really just trying to give someone little breadcrumbs to lead them to the the bigger idea somewhere else well it's a really good question yeah i mean that's that's a very uh there's a lot of aspects to unpack there i think the biggest thing is is you you can't just dump information on people you know people are going to retain a fraction of what you tell them and you know our brains aren't really built for that and i think it's it's good that we're seeing long long form podcasts show up so we can have those kind of discussions and i think people want to have the discussions and, and have that kind of nuance but for average everyday comms is it's going to come down to some sound bites you know even with like new media um you know there's all kinds of examples too where where you have to distill something you know and, and you know for for me i'm really into zoning if you guys haven't heard and uh it's it's a really interesting topic but i think that uh you know no one knows anything about zoning i didn't know anything about zoning a few years ago and really had to dive into it. And how do you translate something that is so niche and nuanced into common language that someone can actually use? And that's a lot with knowing your audience. If you don't know who you're talking to, you're going to always talk past them. You know, we, you guys mentioned this a few minutes ago. We were talking about cryptocurrency that we probably lost a few people on this podcast, which is probably true. But at the same time, it's you probably picked up a few people as well. You piqued some interest. Or you introduce some people to some ideas that they haven't really heard before. And, you know, I'll, I'll admit there for a minute, I was like, I don't really know what we're talking about, but I'm going to sit here and <laughs> smile and nod my head. Um, but it's, I think really what it comes down to is in some ways speaking the language in which people are used to speaking. And if you can go to people where they are, you can help them grow or help them help to explain things to them. Absolutely. Hey, you asked me about the crypto and it, it <laughs> sent did. us down a, a rabbit hole. I absolutely, uh, I didn't want to explain there. verification rewards to, to, the, uh, <laughs> to the public. I mean, I, I think it's, it's probably something that, that people do have a lot of questions on. So actually just to put it to the audience, if you're listening, watching wherever you are and you are curious about cryptocurrency or anything else, definitely drop it in the comments. Ask us a question. We'd yeah. be happy to dig into it yeah, for just you. Ask a simple question. What is pudgy penguins? <laughs> Kyle would be happy to illuminate that for you. Just a nice little insert right there. Yes. (laughs) No, it it is funny because I I randomly, like, Tanner, Tanner, Tanner's hilarious. I randomly just got a message one day and he's just like, everybody's been wondering what the hell is Pudgy Penguins? (laughs) (laughs) You you did a terrible job explaining it to me, by the way. I'm I'm barely caught up, but at least I know that it's a thing. Okay, Kyle, 60 seconds. You get your clip. Right now, what are pudgy penguins and why should we care? Oh, jeez. You got 55 seconds. Pudgy penguins. My belief in pudgy penguins and my ownership of the actual digital asset is the belief that I have a financial stake in what I think is going to be a tremendous brand IP uh, moving forward. It's essentially like I'm an early adopter of like Mickey mouse in 1928. Um, that's what a lot of these NFT projects actually are. Um, it's not just that they're digital art. It's like you're having a share in a much larger product that, and then a a licensing agreement of being able to use that product in order to earn royalties off of the use of that product as things get built like uh, books, TV shows, um, Giphy stuff, you know, things like that. 
So that's where average people will interact with pudgy penguins is <laughs> it'll be a plush toy or a yeah. cartoon or a picture book for kids or something. Yeah. Yeah. That, that type of stuff. Gotcha. Like, like, and all those things are in development mm. or have already been released. Why <laughs> couldn't you have just explained that when I first asked? <laughs> <laughs> you just got to put them on the spot exactly. on the podcast. The elevator and pitch is the best way. But, but to the, to the average person, they're looking at this thing. They're looking at these things and we're, we're back into crypto now, but, uh, the average person, they're looking at these things. Like people are, buying these weird monkey pictures on that I could just right click save, you yeah, know, like, isn't it just like a JPEG? It, it's not. Yeah. You know, like it's actually much more than that. It's like, yes, the image can be saved and stuff, but you're actually buying like this unique token that you are the only person that has this token that exists. And I think the ownership percentage puts it into terms that are a lot more understandable because that's a paradigm that, that we're familiar with, mm-hmm. right. In, in the business context. Well, th- think of it like collecting right now, like, First edition Charizard cards for Pokemon go for like a lot of money, right? And now these things are just digitized. Like collecting is now digitized and now there's actual ownership of IP that exists. When before, like there's all these, there's like, like somebody could fake that they have the Mona Lisa. Somebody could fake that they have the Charizard, but there are companies that come in and they will verify like, oh, this is like a mint edition Charizard card, blah, 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 all this stuff, right? And now we, we now have digital versions of that, but it also becomes so much more because it's not just like, you don't have to go to Nintendo necessarily to license out the Charizard. It's like, no, now you actually have own like real ownership over that asset, you know, that a third party o- over can that IP. Yeah. Like, mm. you know, and a lot of libertarians are going to be like, IP doesn't exist. And well, the world thinks it does. Sorry. <laughs> like, <laughs> I would love to have that conversation because I, <laughs> I actually remember talking about that with David, mm-hmm. uh, as a musician, I am a firm believer in IP because you wrote a song someone shouldn't be able to just steal it from you but that's another whole another rabbit hole well yeah no i think there there is frankly i think there's a conversation where i think ip has evolved uh with new technology right now and we're watching the evolution and people are still figuring out how it is evolving right Mm -hmm. now and i think the new generations kind of like tanner said earlier where a lot of these things are just going to be generational adoption like you know if you're 60 years old right now and you're listening to this you're probably like what the hell is happening right but like if you're if you're 18 you're just like yeah i buy fortnite skins and you're like it makes sense i should have ownership over that right you know like it's it's all generational yeah yeah totally well, speaking of evolution, Tanner, I want to hear more about this new project that Frontier Institute is working on. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about it. We'll have to uh, another time dive deep into it. It's uh, really exciting. But uh, really what we're trying to do is, is lay out a long-term vision for freedom in Montana. Uh, a lot of times, you know, especially for a think tank, it's really easy to get caught up in the legislative session, and which is awesome. And we need that, and we need to champion things in the short run. But what you lose sight of is... How do we get to where we want to go? How do we get to making Montana the home of freedom and free enterprise? And that's kind of our goal is creating a long-term vision. So we're going to have a bunch of things that we're going to roll out. Uh, 2050 plans is kind of how we're framing that is how do we get to this by 2050? And we're going to look in everything from education to abundance um, to all kinds of things. So that's kind of where we're headed to. I, I would say, you know, look out for it. We'll, I'm sure we'll have a lot of content coming out that's uh, kind of focused on that as well. Is this going to be a new brand or a sort of a, a long-term campaign put forward by Frontier Institute? Great question. So it is kind of, you know, the way this works in the uh, think tank world is you you launch a center that is going to be a policy center that's mm-hmm. focused on specific things. And so the Center for New Frontiers will be under the Frontier Institute, but it will have specific focuses. So when you look at think tanks in other states, they'll have like the Center for Justice or the Center for whatever it might be. But really what they're really trying to do is 
give a mission that's a little bit different than the overall brand, but it's going to allow them to be more strategic. And that's kind of what the Center for New Frontiers will be. Gotcha. More targeted to specific issues in Montana specifically. Exactly. Yeah. Frontier Institute is, you know, I would say 95%, maybe more we focus on is, is going to be state issues. Occasionally we'll talk about things that's going to be federal, but for the most part, it's, it's really going to be about state issues. And, you know, we're, we love Montana. We live in Montana and we're Montana. And so we, we want to make sure that we have future generations that can thrive here too. And so that's making sure that we have prosperity and liberty for the long run. Do you have any early like subjects, initiatives, things that you can kind of let us in on to get people excited? Yeah, great question. You know, um, I give some teasers, I suppose. Uh, you know, the big one that I'm working on right now is going to be education freedom. Montana has been behind for decades, um, like shockingly behind. You know, we just had our first charter schools get legalized in Montana. It was a battle um, and it's been going on for as long as I can remember. And uh, 45 states had it before us. I, I grew up when I went to a charter school, you know. Um, it's not a crazy concept to me and to come to Montana um, and realize that it's not a thing here is, is kind of a shocking thing, a shocking reality. And so education freedom, where we're going is, you know, I guess, you know, I should, I should preface the difference between school choice and education freedom. School choice is, is kind of become a, a talking point for people that really don't like education freedom in some ways because they say, well, here's option A or B, both government backed options that are going to be, you know, two choices. Well, there's your choice, right? That's not choice. It's really an illusion of choice. Exactly. Um, and, you know, what we're really going for is is freedom. You know, we have a, a board member at Frontier Institute that really paints it in a great picture, which is, you know, uh, if school choice is choosing between black and gray and education freedom is choosing between any color you can imagine, which is really paints it in a, in a way that people, I think, can understand. And, and the, the most important thing at the end of the day is making sure that education is focused on kids and students and, and allowing them to learn and, and building education around them rather than taking a system and then sticking kids into it. And I think that's going to be kind of the restructuring that we're going to have to do. Wow. That really is interesting. I mean, it's, it's a reframing of the entire conversation of what education is based on what it has been, right? Which is historically putting kids into an institutional pipeline, if you will, to prepare them for jobs and other things, not thinking about what is it, how am I going to best reach this kid in a way that like allows them to become their most, their highest potential possible through education. Absolutely. And I think the, the really interesting thing to me as I'm going through this 2050 plan and kind of ironing out how this is all going to look is we've seen so much innovation in everything from transportation to communication that is been massive paradigm shifts from a hundred years ago to now. I mean, horse and buggy to, you know, Tesla's like there's been some massive transitions and one area that has just really not seen as much is certainly education and to educators credit. Um, there has been some adoptions of different ways of learning, you know, or teaching, um, recognizing, you know, learning disabilities so that we can be able to better structure uh, content so that they can, you know, really learn better. And I think it's going to be a big transition um, in education freedom, but it's it's going to take changing the paradigm and restructuring things from a top-down system to a bottom-up system so that it's going to be built around students. Is this primarily, I noticed, I mean, you said it's a, a policy center. 
is there is it going to primarily take place in the legislature or is there going to be an entrepreneurial component to this partnerships with you know private sector to to bring about some of these solutions how does that look yeah really good question I think the two are kind of innately intertwined. Um, right now, I'm thinking about this in the policy sense, right? How do we change policy areas, right? Occupational licensing, that kind of thing to get to a vision of a freer Montana. But at the same time, is that's deeply, deeply intertwined with free enterprise and entrepreneurship. And, you know, one thing that we're really working on right now is we just legalized, you know, community choice schools in Montana, which is, you know, our version of um, charter schools. And uh, we might not see a charter school. And, and the reason being is, is that it takes entrepreneurs. It's going to take people coming in and uh, building an ecosystem that allows for charter schools to thrive for any education option. And um, I don't know. I think, that's, I think that's the direction that we're going to have to head. Interesting. So you're really laying the groundwork. You're saying, okay, now the, the playing field is set. Now we need the players to come in and, and actually right. bring and, you the know, game. Being a, a free market think tank, uh, the biggest thing that we're going to think about is how do we reduce the barriers so entrepreneurs can can come in and work? Because the options that we have, you know, we not we might not know what students need, and it's it's funny because you think about education and people want to put it in this box, but when we think about like phones or we think about any other technology that's been invented over the last hundred years, an entrepreneur came. They might not even know how the technology works, but they said, "I can use this innovative idea and I can serve people's interests," and in return, people will pay me money for it. Or will just want to help me out with this. And I think that you're going to see that happen with education. Um, and it's not going to be a transactional thing like some people are scared of. I think it's going to be this big fundamental transition uh, where we can kind of truly have education catered to the needs of students and not just systems or adults. What an awesome thing. Well, it's, it's worth noting, too, is that we'll be releasing pretty soon a interview with Trish Schreiber, who's really took the lead on on uh, the uh, what is it called community choice schooling mm-hmm. is that the right and uh i think this will be releasing before that right yep likely mm-hmm. so um look yeah, out for that look out for that because that'll be a good um that'll be a good update on everything that happened with that whole situation yeah and she is a wealth of knowledge and passion for this topic and it was a real pleasure to get to chat with her um, and i'm excited for people to get to hear that conversation because i think that it's it really changed my understanding, you know, as someone who doesn't have kids, not thinking about education in that sort of direct way, only really thinking back to my school history, you know, in, in public school environment, I uh, I didn't have nearly the, the breadth and depth of what actually like a charter school is, what education freedom is versus just school choice and all those things and some of the misconceptions that are out there. Uh, are are very are very clearly just um, some of them talking points to sort of try to scare people away, like you mentioned, and some of them just just honest misunderstandings of what is actually going on. I have a, a really good example that you know I personally have experience with going to a charter school, and uh, the biggest thing would be a talking point to kind of scare people away, and it's it's usually institutional insiders, adults that that don't want to give up their capture of education, uh, in all honesty, and. That is, is waiving some of the requirements, um, the what I would consider red tape, some of these regulations that, um, you know, often are implemented with good purpose. But today they have stopped um, serving their purpose and we should kind of look past them a little bit. And one of them um, that I, you know, I didn't know what was happening at the time. But when I was uh, in charter school, 
we took a test. Everyone took like a some sort of exam that was not a public school exam or private school exam. It was something very unique. And um, turns out a bunch of people in our class had dyslexia. And um, they were able to hire a specialist for dyslexia. And every day, I think there was probably seven students in our class, of maybe like 25. So a big, a good portion of them um, got pulled out for an hour every day and would go and work this with a specialist. And that is something that can happen in public schools, depending on regulations, depending on um, their their drive to innovate. But when you have a bottom up system where it is driven by results and outcomes and making sure that you know a parent doesn't come yell at you because their students not their kids not learning i think that's going to be um the big thing that we're going to have to do is is really kind of building this from the ground up so that's an exciting thing that we're going to see i'm i'm very excited about charter schools education savings accounts are going to be coming in i'm sure you guys will uh, dive into that future as well but i hope so one of the big things that i'm that i see as just a white pill about education in general for kids is i think that covid woke a lot of parents up to what was going on in schools and kids are becoming a lot more or sorry parents are becoming a lot more active in their kids education because i you know for right or for wrong a lot of parents just kind of like drop off their kids at school like it's some sort of daycare and they're not really thinking about the deep nuances of like, how is, how are my kids actually learning? You know, but when, when COVID happened, a lot of parents saw like uh, their, their, the teachers on these zoom calls, they weren't really giving it their all to their students. And then they started becoming kind of like, I don't know if my kids in the right, in the right school or like these, these teachers aren't teaching my kids what I thought they were teaching or, you know, all these things. So now seeing parents moving towards this opportunity of being able to be like, I have all these options now. I'm not confined by my zip code of like whatever public school I am. Like I think more and more of that is going to be, I think we're, I think we're just going to see a natural movement I think happen because of it. You're exactly right. And that's, that's going to be the biggest transition of if people changing and, and recognizing that this isn't a right issue or a left issue. It's not a Republican or Democrat. This is a family issue. This is a parents and their children issue. There was a study uh, or a, a poll that came out this week, a new survey of registered voters in America Really interesting. They found overall 71% supported the concept of school choice, while just 13% opposed. That is a massive transition from 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and then when you break it down, it's even more interesting. 66% of Democrats were in favor of the concept of school choice, 80% among Republicans, and 69% among independents. Americans, Montanans, we want school choice. And you know politicians should get behind it. Uh, and, you know, I think that we're going to see that happen again. A lot of states, you know, we went from having, I think, two ESAs a year or two ago to having education savings accounts, what that stands for. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the gold standard for education freedom. Um, to having 10, I believe, is the, is the latest count here. And, and Montana just jumped on board with that with kind of a narrowly tailored one, but it's a really great start. And whether you're in a Democratic state or a Republican state is it's time for education freedom. Well, one yeah. of the things I really like about ESA's education savings accounts too is that it really stops the double spending problem where, you know, if you're sending your kid to school, you're paying, you're essentially paying the taxes that is your kid going to the school. But then like if you're sending your kid to a private school or you're homeschooling or something like that, then you're then spending money on top of that to, it's, it's almost like you're sending two kids to school and ESA's allows you to basically track where your money is going so it, it solves a lot of that the the financial issue of having opportunity because before it really was just like 
you have to have a lot of money to be able to send your kids to a quality education. Right. And, many, that, and now it becomes like, now everybody's on an even playing field. How many politicians have we heard over the last 25, 50 years that would be all against school choice and being able to choose what school you send your kid to? Even open enrollment has faced some fight back in the day um, just to find out that they were sending their kids to a private school. And, you know, education options should not be just for rich people. It, it should be for everyone. And that's what the education freedom movement is is trying to do, is making sure that every student, regardless of your parents' income has the option to be able to go to the school that's going to help them learn the best. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, for, for the audience, I, I went to a private school um, and it would have been incredibly beneficial to be able to have ESAs because I had a single mother that put me through private school and it's just like she was essentially paying for two kids to go right now. And it's it's one of those things where it's just like, whew, like I greatly cherish the education that I had and that I didn't end up going into a public school. I, th I think it was great for me. I think, I think the education, the teachers that I had were excellent. Um, but you know, not everybody's capable of getting that and like giving more kids that option of being able to kind of float around and choose, like, you know, like there's a competition for education. Like, like everything should have, be, should be subject to competition and being able to choose what's best, I think is, Ideal. One thing I want to kind of address there too that I've I've seen a lot of kickback of people who don't necessarily buy into the free market um, rhetoric. They hear the word competition and they see, oh, it's a waste of resources. We're building duplicate yeah. systems. It's a very very common thing that's said. And the reality is is that when you have competition, right, you have direct market signals from the producer to the consumer. In this case, it would be an education provider to the consumer, which would be a student and the family. And what that allows is really great messages to be sent of like, how do we want to use these resources? So what you end up having is, is that the cost of goods goes down. And when you have competition, that's what we see in time and time again, um, unless there's some intervention from the government. And then we see some other funky signals coming out too. And so competition isn't this scary thing. It's, it's what makes everything better. You know, the fact that we can compete with other podcasts, for example, or other think tanks. Um, we got to regulate our competition out of existence. <laughs> That's right. We need to, we need to write to our legislators and get some of these. We need to hire a lobbyist. That's what we should do. Yeah. But it's, it's, you know, it, thinking about, you know, podcasts is you guys are creating content and if someone else is creating content better, it's more compelling and people are more interested in, then they're going to go listen to that podcast. And it's about what that, what does that do to you guys? It once sends you signals about what content people want and allows you the opportunity to innovate so that you can also succeed too. So it's not this competition's not a scary thing. It's it's a really, really good thing. There's, you know, a great word that I like to use, which is creative destruction. We can go down a whole rabbit hole about that sometime, which is that it really allows for um, the best use of resources. And, you know, sometimes things are gonna fail, you know, uh, businesses especially, it's, it's gonna be something that's gonna happen. But that's a good thing. You know, the Soviet Union, if, if they would have had a little bit of failure, they probably would have gone a lot further. How many misallocation of resources did they have? Ultimately, they had a lot of failure, yeah. but, you know, <laughs> I, I, overall failure. I, I, I don't know. There's a lot of people that believe there's too many, there's too much uh, people on the world. And I think Stalin did a very good job at a, uh, that is you know, one of the most scary. Like, if, if that's today. your opinion, yeah. then he did a great job, right? Yeah, I like, think that, and I think a lot of a lot of his supporters we, would agree with that. We kind of refer them as uh, degrowthers, and this is, I think it's a really really scary ideology that people don't necessarily know what they're buying into. And I saw it rampant in college campuses when I was going to college. It was a constant thing where people, professors, and people would look at humans as a, a plight on the earth, 
and anti-natalism is like the actual philosophical principle it's, it's okay. specifically that we need to start eliminating right. Earth, right and i think that is so foolhardy and it it opens the door to so much nihilism and in the past i mean it, we don't have to look that far ago when we see those kind of ideologies start to get adopted heinous heinous things are done in the name of creating a population or uh, reducing population at least so I, I think that's a very, very scary ideology. And not to mention, it's it's kind of foolhardy too of that, you know, I, I, I had a, a professors when I was going to college that would talk about the population boom. Um, and they would use models of like wolves or antelope and sustainable, you know, population um, and how we've already reached past that point. And there's like no return basically and that we're gonna have a population collapse. That's been disproven so many times, but it's still so commonly cited. There's too many people the thing is, is that when we have more people, we have more innovation. And that is a beautiful thing. Crops take up less land today. Forests are growing. Yes, we have some challenges we're going to have to face, certainly. But when we allow for economic economic opportunity, we pull people out of poverty. People have less kids, too. So we're having, you know, in, in America, population um, growth is declining. It's been declining for a long time. China's starting to face that. And I think that the answer is to pull people out of poverty. It's, it's, it's not to... Uh, Cull the herd, which is a terrible thing to do. So you're saying there's a there's a market response naturally, as people appreciate through uh, economic abundance, they acquire that they they naturally make some of those decisions themselves of their own volition versus having that forced upon them by an authoritarian centralized planning government or state that says you can only have X number of kids, which is what. China is sort of uh, maybe a ramification of what they're facing, right? Is some of those policies they've had in the past. Yeah, certainly. And I think that you really see that with China specifically is they adopted this policy because they were worried about a population collapse. They were worried about running out of resources. And so they, they implemented this big overarching plan to limit, you know, kids, the one child policy. Everyone really is pretty familiar with that, I would imagine. Um, and what's so funny is, is that we had, you know, we've kind of in some ways have, I think the, um, the reproduction rate in area in the United States is I think 1.7 or something like that. I could be totally off. Um, but really what that is, is we've kind of created a one child policy through prosperity without reducing freedom. And they took the exact opposite approach and, um, tell you what, there's a lot of people that, uh, die and there's all kinds of repercussions that are, um, from that happening. So it's a sad thing to see when people resort to government power, you know, and the monopoly of force and, really um, dictating their will over pe other people rather than letting them live their life. So, something that I like that you said too is that there's like this deep nihilism about it. Um, Nietzsche, when he wrote about all of his predictions of how there was going to be this swath of blood that would sweep across the West, across the 20th century, which kind of happened in, in the World Wars, um, he described that there would become this, there would be nihilism, this, this encroaching nihilism across the West would create this, uh, this, like battleground between a life affirmation ideology and a life denying ideology. And that you'd essentially have this gigantic death cult that would sweep up and, and all of their politics. And he said, and he said it would be, it would come through liberal democracy is what he said. All of their politics would be, you know, like they'd have their, uh, they'd have their political opinions and stuff like this, but it'd be deeply rooted in this. I want to get rid of the people of the earth. Kind of a thing and you see that now with a lot of policies of, of like there's too many p humans on the planet it's very deeply rooted within the environmental movement right so especially 
a very specific wing of the environmental movement that is most of it unfortunately um you see it with I don't know. You you may you you might put the pro life pro choice arguments in here. There's very, it's it's kind of life affirmation versus life denying, right? Like you you start to see if you start to look at politics through that lens, you're just like maybe Nietzsche was a little bit onto something. Like there is this deep nihilism, and and you know a lot of people that are in the political field, they're very uh, they're very uh, what would you say, very pessimistic, very ne- negative. They're very there's a lot of this like. Oh, it's just it's all over, man. Like it's very black pilled, and I, I think there's something to it. I think the nihilism thing is is correct. Well, hopefully, Tanner, your uh, efforts in the education space will allow for there to be uh, a new perspective on all this stuff, and uh, hopefully, point towards life affirming versus life denying, and uh, you know, bring a lot of prosperity to a lot of people who don't have it, and bring more prosperity to those that already do. And I think we'll. Before we close out, I I have something for you guys. I want you guys to feel confident in our leaders um, coming. You know, we we got the great Kamala Harris and her great oratory skills here to explain us uh, explain to us the new technology that's coming on the forefront here. Um, Let's not forget this is the possible potential president of the United States. If, if something would happen to our dear leader now, yes, that would be the case. <laughs> He's right? healthy. He's fine though. He's, He's fine. Everything's the emperor everything's has no good. clothes. Um, so right. long as he has his cocaine. <laughs> all right. Here's the great Kamal Harris. And I think the first part of this issue that should be articulated is AI is kind of a fancy thing. It's, first of all, it's two letters. It means artificial <laughs> intelligence, but ultimately what it is, is it's about machine learning. And so the machine is taught and part of the issue here is what information is going into the machine that will then determine and and we can predict then if we think about what machine what information is going in what then will be produced in terms of decisions and opinions um, that may be made through that process so there's the great kamala wise words of wisdom from our vice president if we could predict it is it really an ai then well if you if you have an input and you know what the output's going to be then it can't be an artificial intelligence it's just a machine well it's a function yeah yeah food for thought thought. (laughs) until next time so as as we leave you today i want you to meditate on those two letters ai a and i a and i it's two letters two letters All right, gents. Thanks so much. Tanner, we appreciate you for coming and joining us and taking uh, the place of uh, of David for this episode. Hopefully, we can replace him more often and have you back. Perfect. I love it. Hopefully, he'll stay in Oregon for a little longer, huh? Yeah, we'll see if we can't uh, extend his vacation for a bit. Really appreciate you having me. Thanks, uh, if man. you're going to replace him, though, you're going to have Maybe to... Maybe go bald. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll work yep. on it. Yeah. Yep. Well, thank you for watching. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Liberty Portal podcast. To help us fight internet censorship, we really appreciate it if you like, comment, subscribe, follow, hit the notification bell, do whatever it is that you do wherever it is that you're listening to this podcast. To find us on social media and everywhere around the web, visit us at linktree.com slash libertyportalpod. And remember, <clears throat> well, I am very happy and I would never want to unalive myself, just for the record.